The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday the 8th of November and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As the United Kingdom gets ready for a general election next year that most people believe is going to lead to the election of a Labour administration, Rishi Sunak has laid out what looks likely to be the last annual programme of legislation after 13 years of continuous Conservative Prime Ministers. The legislative plans announced by King Charles to Parliament on Tuesday uh, were greeted with a pretty muted response, but one thing that was not notable by its absence, was any concrete proposal at all to address the concerns of the Democratic Unionist Party about the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Windsor Framework. So what does that mean for the devolved administration in Northern Ireland, which has been suspended forever now, it seems to me? To discuss this, I'm joined by our Northern Editor, Freya McClements, our Political Editor, Pat Leahy, and by Political Commentator, Alex Kane. Freya, can I go to you first? What is the current state of play after the King's speech, which really made no reference at all to Northern Ireland? Yeah, I mean, it really does feel like we've been here forever. And um, I mean, even when I look back over sort of things that we've we've talked about and discussed over the last, I mean, this is more than eight, 18 months now. I mean, it, it feels like things really haven't moved on or have moved on um, incrementally. I mean, where are we after the, the King's speech yesterday? I mean, it's as you were, really. I mean, we were talking earlier and you asked me how I felt about it and I said, well, I'm optimistic because Alex Kane is optimistic who <laughs> you're going to speak to shortly and, and Alex is never optimistic. So if he's optimistic, then I would take some some encouragement from, from that. But I mean, in terms of where we are, discussions are, are ongoing, but they've been ongoing for, for a long time. And I think the key thing is, and I made this um, point in an analysis piece, which is on, on uh, the website today on, on Wednesday, is that this can't go on indefinitely. You know, the UK government ha- has made clear that as far as it is concerned, negotiations are nearing an end. You know, it's made clear before this that negotiations on the the Windsor framework are not going to be reopened. And, and, you know, you have to bear in mind as well, nor indeed would the EU reopen them. Um, You know, London has an awful lot of other priorities, not least the the looming general election. So even just in terms of the bandwidth that the UK government is going to have to take, take this on board, it's just not going to be there. So they've made it really clear that this conversation isn't going to continue indefinitely. And I think from the Irish government's point of view as well, you know, you could really tell the frustration from from Michal Martin the Tonistia on, on Sunday when he was talking on RTE and talking about how the momentum seems to have have ebbed and, and that these negotiations seem to have come more or less to occlusion. So, you know, where does this leave us? I mean, clearly, and I think Alex is going to go into some of this, you know, there, there has been a choreography going on. There has been a positioning towards going back in. Um, I think there's, you know, I think it's a matter of weeks, maybe a month before there's going to have to be a decision made by Jeffrey Donaldson and the DUP. Otherwise, the UK government is just going to move on. And as so often, and I've said this before, it's going to come down, you know, come down to at some point, Jeffrey Donaldson is going to have to go, do we make the leap? Do we just 
go in and, and, and see, see what happens. And it's essentially whether he has the courage of his, his convictions around that. Alex, fair refer to your uh, unusually optimistic uh, column on Monday. Do you still feel as optimistic? I mean, the sense that, that I got was that, that the kind of choreography which, which Freire refers to there implied some kind of statement, no matter how performative or rhetorical that statement might be, but there's no sign of that yet. And there does seem to be a bit of a difference. Jeffrey Donaldson has says, you know, discussions are ongoing. Freya's suggesting discussions have ground to a halt. Well, I think first of all, in, in terms of my optimism, most people are very worried about it. Somebody says like a great disturbance in the force when Alex <laughs> displays any signs of, of optimism. And it is the optimism is based on having been here before to some extent back in the, at the time the DUP were, were making the decision to go into government with uh, Sinn Féin, the Martin McGuinness, Ian Paisley, Chuckle Brothers routine. Because if you look at the, the two or three weeks before that, and that was a momentous decision. I mean, I think in some sense it's even bigger than the decision Jeffrey Donaldson has to make right now. But in the two or three weeks before that decision was made, I mean, the the, the papers were full of uh, uh, Ian Paisley and Peter Robinson were going to have to face down Nigel Dawes and Gregory Campbell and all, you know, the, their parliamentary team, their peers team, some of their, you know, their assembly team. But bit by bit by bit, you know, they did it because they kept saying, what's your alternative? I remember Robinson saying a few years later when I was interviewing him, he said, you know, we, we kept coming back to the same point, Alex, or the internal opponents. What's the viable and available alternative if we don't do this? If we bring down devolution, which is what would have happened if they hadn't done the deal with Sinn Féin. If we bring down devolution right now in 2007, the British government and the Irish government are not coming back to the drawing board. It's on board. It's unlikely that Sinn Féin will come back. You know, what do we do? Where do we start? How long will we be stuck in the limbo of direct rule? I think exactly the same decisions face Donaldson right now. But the other problem with him, um, and I think the British government do express the frustration about this, and certainly in the NIO they express the frustration. This is not just about pleasing Donaldson. In, in, in essence, it wouldn't have mattered if, if, if King Charles had said in, in, in the state opening yesterday, Jeffrey's wonderful, the best leader of union, and, and we'll do any, anything and everything we can to make him happy. That's not the audience that he needs to address. That's not the audience he needs to keep happy. It, it's new generation loyalism. It's the generation of loyalism as well from 1998, who, who two years ago withdrew their support from the, the, the Good Friday Agreement. It's the young generation loyalism led by people like Jimmy Bryson. It's the external forces of unionism like Jim Allister's uh, TUV. Jim Allister, who left the DUP in 2007 because they cut the original deal with, with Sinn Féin. So while I have no doubt whatsoever that Donaldson has the numbers in his assembly team, and I think in his officer team, and if he took it to his executive, I think he would get a majority there. His problem is... It's not about facing them down. It's about facing down that those external loyalist, uh, unionist uh, uh, forces of opposition against him. And as I said, I'm sure the British government will say to him over and over and over again, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, this is it. You know this is it. There's nothing more we can give you. And if we can't give it to you, we, we can't give it to a group of people who say, you know, keep us happy. That is not possible. So as Freya says there, I, I, I think, you know, maybe I'll extend it uh, maybe to a month. She, she could be right about that. But at some stage, very, very soon, Donaldson has to sit down and tell his people there is no alternative to this. Either we go into devolution again, imperfect devolution versus imperfect direct rule. And I think if he gives them, if he stands up and makes that argument very clearly, as as Trimble did in 98, and as Paisley and Robinson did in 2007, I think if he does that, he will win the day. But if he dithers and dallies and continues to fudge about with, oh, we're still talking, oh, we're still doing that, 
The government isn't listening to him. The NIO isn't listening to him. King Charles is obviously not listening to him. He may as well just go to the people who oppose him and say, right, guys, I'm going for this. If you don't like it, get rid of me. Find another leader and then sort yourselves out in terms of direct rule because I have gone as far as I can go with this. Because just to be clear, when you say face down, you don't mean win over because, you know, Jamie Bryson and Jim Allister are not going to accept anything that is the continuation of the Windsor framework and the, and the Northern Ireland Protocol. So it's about exhibiting political strength. It is, because it's, it's not just about the... I mean, Bryson and, and Alistair and others have made quite clear that they do not want the Good Friday Agreement. They do not want devolution. They do not want power sharing. I mean, they've already made it clear. Jim Alistair's on record. I think Bryson and some of the others on record as well as having said that even, even if they got you know what they wanted in the Windsor framework, even if they got that, Oh, well, we don't want to share power with a, a Sinn Féin first minister. We're not going back there. That would be to, you know, to justify what the IRA have done. It would be to justify Michelle O'Neill's recent comments about there was no alternative to the, the IRA campaign. They do not want power sharing. They don't want that. So Donaldson basically has to say to them, look, it's facing them down and simply say, it's the realities. It's saying, guys, here is the reality. We've gone as far as we can go. And Jim Allison knows this. Jim Allison has been through three of courts which have told them over and over and over again the simple truth is this is not a breach of Northern Ireland's position within the Union the, the, the protocol is not unlawful the Windsor framework is not unlawful. Parliament has passed this by a whopping majority. It's sovereignty red in tooth and claw, guys. It's what you wanted when you supported Brexit. Get used to it or find some other way of doing business. So Freya, I mean, as Alex says, um, Jeffrey Donaldson does seem to have the majority, certainly of his MLAs behind him, have the majority in, in that, that part of the party. The question of what the situation is at Westminster may be, may be a little different. But for all that, he is a very cautious politician, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Jeffrey Donaldson is well known as a cautious politician. And there are many examples of this th- throughout his career. I don't think anybody would, would dispute that. Um in terms of the numbers, I mean, my understanding is broadly the same as as Alex's. If you want to just come down to sheer numbers, he does have the numbers. You know, there are some exceptions here and there, but broadly speaking, the MLAs are, are behind him. And the, the issue is with the so-called big beasts, if you like, you know, the Sammy Wilsons of this world, the Lord Morrow, uh, the, the party chairman, the Nigel Dodds of, 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 this, of this world. So essentially, I mean, as Alex says, a lot of this does come down to actually does just, does Jeffrey Donaldson just have the courage of his convictions to go to the party and say, look, this is this is where we are. You know, this is, as Alex says, this is the only viable option. So either we do this or we, we, we don't we do not do this. Um, and, you know, th- there is no other a- alternative. And Jeffrey Donaldson knows this, that the only game in town is devolution, is going back in at some point. But the question is, at what point? And he has dithered for, for so long. Um, one of the questions that I have always asked myself is, you know, where where does that pressure point come? You know, where where does that push come? You know, if if it's the laws of physics or you know the universe, but you know, if you have something that has been static for a really long time, you need a push to get it going. You need something to get that momentum going. And, and we have passed points. I mean, I mean, I always thought that when the Windsor framework was announced, that was the best opportunity. To, to go back in, to call that a win, to go back in, to say we will reform that from within. And, and that has, has passed. And I think that the difficulty that we have now with the looming election and there's been polling this week, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, which has actually shown the DUP up and has also shown um, huge level of support, 72% of its voters um, supporting no return to the Assembly. You know, I've made this point before, 
Donaldson is not getting any heat from from the DUP's voters. You know, if anything, it, it looks as if it's actually benefiting them. So when you when you then go into a Westminster election scenario where you have a binary choice, you know, it, we're not talking about PR, we're not talking about votes being being spread, and we can talk all we like about. Jim Allister and, and, and Jamie Bryson, but they, they are not going to matter in that Westminster election scenario, whereby in somewhere like, like East Belfast, where the DUP's Gavin Robinson could be under threat, particularly if Naomi Long is the candidate, could be under threat from for Alliance. You know, the choice is, do you vote for the DUP or do you vote for the Alliance candidate? There is no more nuance. So all of those DUP voters and those unionist voters are still going to vote for the DUP candidate. Can I just ask you about that, just to clarify on that, in, an, in a non-PR election like Westminster, from what I understand from the piece which, which our listeners should read on, on irishtimes.com right now by you, I mean, the DUP is under threat from the centre, from Alliance in the Westminster elections. So staying out is potentially electorally damaging in the Westminster elections, even though paradoxically it's on the up in the Lucid poll this week. Well, so so I, I actually don't think that, that, that staying out is potentially damaging in the Westminster election because the okay. Westminster election isn't going to be fought on that. So in a scenario where you have... In somewhere like East Belfast, the the other constituency where the DUP is facing the challenge is in Lagan Valley, and again, that's from Alliance, that's Sorsha Eastwood. Um, it's a first past the post election, so whoever gets one vote more than the next person wins. So in in that scenario, a lot of the nuance get gets lost. So it's not going to come down to who has gone back into the assembly or not. It's going to come down to if you're a unionist, do do you? And, and the union is the most important thing and a unionist candidate is the most important thing for you, you're going to vote for the DUP because they're the only unionist candidate that, that can win. Um, and if you are somebody who is not a, not a unionist uh, or not a DUP supporter, who um, and, and you might be, at heart, you might be a Sinn Féin supporter, they might be your, your preferred party, but you know that in that constituency, Sinn Féin are not going to return an MP. So you might might vote for the Alliance Party. So essentially, it becomes the choice between um, the DUP candidate or the Alliance so candidate. So there's no danger of disenchanted unionists, perhaps people who, used, who previously voted for the Ulster Unionist Party, defecting to Alliance because Alliance might win the seat off the DUP. That's not, that's not the dynamic. Quite possibly, it, it it is the dynamic, but it, it's 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 not going to be the key. It's not going mm, to be the okay. key dynamic, um, and I think the problem with this in 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 the context of the the assembly and the return to the assembly is that there, there isn't really any danger there for the DUP in terms of that Westminster election because I do think that most of that seventy two percent that say they would want to stay out of the assembly will still vote for the DUP in that binary choice situation. So effectively, it it, it takes away a lot of the consequence. You know, if the DUP don't go back in, other than that most people in Northern Ireland would argue that we, we need politicians back in the assembly and we need politicians running the place and making decisions and this is better for everybody. I mean, other than that sort of greater good argument, if you like, you know, if the DUP doesn't go back in, where, where is the consequence? Because on the electoral numbers, it can actually afford to sit out for un, until the far side of the UK general election, which potentially could be as late as January 2025, which is a very bleak prospect. I want to bring in Pat in a moment, but Alex, just to come back to you on one other point of this, and I want to talk, move on a little bit to what this actually means for how Northern Ireland is being run at the moment, which is, or not being run, which is which is pretty important. But do you agree with Freya's analysis there? I mean, from what she's saying, the electoral incentives, 
Um, whatever about Jeffrey Donaldson's personal belief, and he has articulated that in recent days, that he believes direct rule is bad for unionism and for the union. But whatever with those personal beliefs, are the incentives so strong for the DUP to stay out, even though it's not in the public interest, that it's still very likely that that is what they will do? Well, I'm, I'm going to disagree with Freya slightly in this because I, I think there's something which is clearly worrying the DUP right now. And it's where Alliance voters are going, because there is this sense that I mean, what Alliance has done over the past few years, it, it, it's built itself as the middle ground. There isn't, there isn't a middle ground in the sense, you know, that there's a whole pile of smaller parties. The, the middle ground is basically the Alliance Party. The Alliance Party has built quite substantially on um, people shifting, non-unionists or unionists who, who just couldn't be bothered voting. You know, they didn't like the unionist parties seem in the past few years, particularly post-Brexit, to have been attracted by Alliance. We can see in even the latest uh, polling done in Belfast that uh, UUP support has dropped. It's now down to 8%. Some of that, that hasn't all gone to the DUP. In fact, I, I would make just a sort of um, edge of the, the paper calculation that maybe half of that uh, UUP vote from a few months ago is shifting to Alliance. If you look at some say North Down, for example, which is held by Alliance, East Belfast, a former dual in the Unionist Crown, Lagan Valley, former dual, Strangford, former dual, South Belfast, former dual, all of those. I know right now that Unionist parties are talking about maybe coming to some sort of agreement to work out who they should pull. And in some, even in North Down, North Down, which is never ever until Stephen Farley got it in 2019, in this whole history, it's always been held by a Unionist of one sort or another. Unionists are now seriously saying, that they need to have a single unionist candidate to win that seat against Alliance. In East Belfast, I've already heard some of the DUP say it would be helpful if the Ulster Unionist Party didn't contest East Belfast. In South Belfast, they're trying to win it back from the SDLP. Again, it can only be done with one unionist candidate. What Donaldson has to calculate in all of this is how many of that soft unionist vote, how many of that soft unionist vote, that pro-union vote, who will come out in a border poll to vote to stay in the EU. I have no doubt about that. They will come out and vote to stay in the United Kingdom. But they're not voting for political parties, for, for political unionism or electoral unionism. They don't like that. These are people who want to see stability. These are people who believe that Northern Ireland's position in the union is probably best maintained and sustained and propped up if the place looks stable, if the place looks as though it can actually get on reasonably well. Those are voters who I think this time might want to send a message to the DUP, might want to send a message particularly to Donaldson, don't take us for granted. And they, those, as I say, those five seats, all of those five seats in the right circumstances could be lost to unionism. That would be a massive blow. So Donaldson has to bring that into his calculation as well. Yes, in one sense, he's no threat from Jamie Bryson or loyalism. He's no particular threat from the TUV, which has always been you know, a one-man uh, uh, band since, since 2007. But... If that shift to alliance is made up by my calculations, maybe its vote is representing somewhat half of that vote is a pro-union, soft unionist vote. And those people decide, OK, we are sending that message. Then unionism and the DUP in particular could be in enormous trouble. Well, that's very interesting because those are two very different perceptions of the challenges facing the party. Patch, you've been uh, unusually quiet there for a very long time. Um, <laughs> I, I, I suppose the first thing, as, as always, I should ask you about this is what is the view from within government in Dublin of the likelihood of any movement? I mean, in some respects, the, the view hasn't changed in Dublin, uh, which was sort of, in the wake of the agreement, was sort of cautiously optimistic in that, you know, this idea, you know, that if he politicked enough that Jeffrey Donaldson would come up with a good option 
for the DUP. Um, no, nobody in Dublin ever really believed that. What They believed that what Donaldson needed to appreciate and to communicate to his party is that their choice from their perspective will be what's the least bad option. Stay out and take his chances or, or, or go into devolved government and, uh, and, and make the best of it. And, you know, those choices haven't really changed for him. There was a sense, I think, in the first half of this year in London, very much so, that because Donaldson really had no option, uh, you know, but to try and work devolution, then he would find his way to come in. Dublin was always a little less optimistic that he would come in. I think perhaps having a greater working knowledge of, you know, the internal arrangements in unionism, I think, then might be present in uh, in, in London. That having been said, um, you know, I, I, I was speaking to somebody um, in Dublin uh, about this, who says, you know, they think that they think that Jeffrey is uh, is is nearly there, but they add that. But of course, Jeffrey is always nearly there, <laughs> and you know there is there is some sense. Some influential figures in Dublin think that the choreography is being put in place. There's um, you know there's talk of ministers going to London. Uh, but I wonder if, I mean, I, I think it was Alex kind of talked to, you know, about the choreography being uh, being put in place. But choreography, political choreography requires in-depth collaboration amongst the players. It requires an agreement on conclusions and then a, a detailed joint working out of how to get there and how to present that process. And I'm just not sure that that level of collaboration between Donaldson, Dublin and London and presumably the heads up being given to Sinn Féin in the north as well. I'm just not sure that 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 level of cooperation is going on at the moment. And that is one of the reasons for that is because the north has... To the extent that it, it was ever it, near the top very, of... It's not very important in London anymore. Is it precisely so, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, that's the other part of this, which, again, you refer to in, in your piece, Freya, isn't it? I mean, this, this government, as I said at the outset, uh, is winding down. Uh, the likelihood is it won't, be, it, it, it won't be returning. There's a general sense of despondency, I would say, in the, in the Conservative Party, if not, if not worse. Uh, they're, they're kind of manning, the, they're trying to plug the breaches at the moment in advance of the election. And really, Northern Ireland doesn't rank very highly there. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and you might say it was ever thus. Um, I think you know, that's certainly ratcheted up at, at, at this stage. I mean, I was in, in, involved with a, in a conversation with some people um, earlier in the week about the, the Newry floods and somebody said, you know, and you know, the Secretary of State hasn't even bothered to turn up and, and come, come and look at the, the damage. And, you know, isn't, isn't this, this terrible? Although in fairness, I think he ha- has been um, sort of meet, meeting with politicians and things on this. But the other person said, well, sure, why would he? You know, there, there's certainly no votes for the Conservative Party in Newry. I mean, there's no, there's no votes for the Conservative Party in, in, in Northern Ireland full stop. Um, so, yeah, you know, to an extent, 
this is the way it has always been in terms of Northern Ireland, but obviously um, the pressures on the Conservative Party um, and the fact that they are now gearing up to uh, another general election um, and there's, yeah, there's no sense that this is going to be the government that we are dealing with um, on the other side of that that election. But, but I mean, all this does in that kind of broader sense is it, it just, it feeds into that sense of, of limbo. It feeds into that sense, I think, that sort of, despair over politics in general you know that that sense that this is a place that doesn't really matter to, to politics and, and, and to politicians I mean for for all you know we, we get the the grand statement I mean that that line I can't remember precisely what it was um King Charles said in his speech yeah my government will promote the integrity of the union and strengthen the social fabric of the UK well you know he's the monarch of this country mm. you know could, I mean, that could have been written by chat gbt though you know? yeah exactly. i mean you, you know you you know what would be really surprising was. would be if, if he didn't say probably well if, Royal if, he, chat didn't, if he, he didn't say that indeed you know so what does this all mean again for northern ireland in this you know just ongoing kind of stasis and limbo that, yeah, that, that this we're whole, in this whole thing can i ask you Freya? i mean this this idea of of the place being in limbo i mean you know Drive up from here, go across the border, drive it to Belfast. You know the road. The roads are still there. You know somebody's cutting the hedges. The lights come on when it gets dark. Um, you know, is it different from direct rule in the nineteen nineties? Albeit things were a lot grimmer in a, in a lot of ways in the nineteen nineties. It strikes me that maybe it's even worse because there were systems of responsibility, albeit without the democratic accountability, as you mentioned, because you had ministers who who weren't looking for votes in Northern Ireland. But it, it does seem stuck in an even worse kind of way. And there's these grave, grave problems with with the NHS, with the stuff we hear about the environment, Loch Ney, and no sign of them being addressed at all. Yeah, well, one of the key differences now is when you, you drive across the border, you know, I'm old enough to remember it used to be when you drove south of the border, everyone went, everyone, oh, these roads are terrible. Now it's the other way. When you're making your journey journey up to Belfast, it, it, it's it's the roads on the southern side of, of the border that are now the better roads. But um, I mean, yeah, in terms of that question, of, I mean, what we have at the minute isn't really direct rule because there's nobody making d- decisions. What what we have is an absence of of government. There are no ministers making decisions, and the UK government steps in. The Secretary of State steps in only in you know the absolutely exceptional circumstances that are needed to keep the lights on effectively. You know, Northern Ireland is being run by in terms of everything that is a devolved matter. The only people in place making decisions are civil servants. And again, they, they are really limited in, in, in what they can do. It's that keep the lights on decisions. Um, and I mean, you know, some of the examples that we've seen of that really recently was in terms of of the, the Newry flooding um, when there, there was, on, on, you know, the response to that was undoubtedly hampered by the fact that, you know, even just having a minister who can go down there and say, right, we're going to do this. This is what we're going to do to help people. You know, somebody's here. Somebody's taking responsibility for this. So, you know, somebody is going to going to help help these people. Um, I mean, it, it it's possibly not not the best example because something of this scale and scope would always have required financial intervention from the UK government centrally, and that looks as if it is it's going to be um, what, what what will happen. There's been discussions ongoing around that, so it would always have been just because the financial ask is so great. It would probably always have been beyond. Um, the, the financial power of, of the Stormont government. But nevertheless, it just it, it illustrates this kind of gap in, in governance. And, and the other example and you mentioned there about Loch Ness, eventually there was a, you know, a, a multi-agency sort of multidisciplinary task force w- was put in place to try and tackle Loch Ness. But I, I, I asked a, a civil servant 
um, in the department about this when this was when this this was instituted. And I said, look, given all the problems facing this, given that we're going to need you know massive investment, massive commitment, we're going to need somebody there making decisions. We're going to need need a change in mindset actually to put environment first rather than um, than agriculture. You know. Isn't it the case that because there is no storm on all of this is going to be severely, severely hamstrung, you know, if ever I get off the ground? And he just said, he said, there are so many aspects to that. He said, I, I don't even know where, where we start, you know, so that, that that's what, 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 what we're dealing with. And I think the other problem with all of this is that you're building on, you know, this current absence of the Assembly is building on a previous three-year suspension. So we'd no government in Northern Ireland from 2017 to 2020. The Assembly got back up and running two months before COVID hit. There were all the challenges of that. We were just emerging from that. Then when the DUP, um, Paul Given quit as, as First Minister and, and collapsed the executive. So that's basically seven years in which we haven't had what you might term normal government. So if you think all the problems that build up over seven years, you know, underinvestment, lack of forward planning, you know, we have this massive budgetary black hole now. And you're seeing that particularly in the health service, which is just falling over at the minute. You know, the waiting lists are, are longer than anywhere else in, in, in the UK or Ireland. Um, I mean, I, I heard, heard a, a, an example re- recently um, of a, a, a lady who was seriously a terminally ill who, who was you know the, the waiting list for the appointment that she needed to see the consultant would have been a, a year plus you know I mean this is the kind of thing that people are dealing with on a daily basis and this is the impact of limbo and what it also does and this is maybe getting very deep into the psychology of this but it also you know fundamentally it just erodes faith in democracy and institutions of that democracy and in the fact that you have a government that, that, that will look after you and look after the people and, and that's really you know, in terms of the power sharing government in the north, that, that, that was really hard one. I mean, the other difference between now and the 1990s, you know, in the 1990s, we were still in, in, in the troubles. You know, the peace process was, was, was still getting going. We, we had all of that. Um, but, you know, the longer this limbo goes on, the more people lose faith, but they also turn away. You know, when you have a political vacuum, pe- vacuum people look elsewhere. I mean, somebody reminded me yesterday... It's only sort of four, four and a half years since Lyra McKee was murdered. It's not that long ago. And in political terms, if Stormont isn't working, you know, you can see people looking towards alternative, whether that's direct rule, United Ireland, joint authority, whatever you want you want to call it. You know, so if, if you know, the longer Stormont doesn't work, the more just it erodes actually faith in that as an institution, full stop. I want to go to Alex about some of those points, but um, uh, regular listeners will know that I always leap on any mention of funding related matters to remind them that uh, that we too need to be funded and we need to keep the lights on in, in this building as well. And that in order to do that, we rely on uh, your beneficence by uh, signing up to subscribe to the Irish Times. Uh, if you have not already, Already done so just go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe and you'll see all kinds of attractive deals there we'll be back after this so Alex Freya laid out a pretty grim vista there uh, before the break about the kind of the, the state of play in Northern Ireland uh, there comes a point in these conversations and this is the point where I ask does this mean that the the structures of the Belfast agreement may have run their course well yeah I I, I think we're getting to that point because I mean, when Freya talks about the, the limbo we've had, you know, the, the, this thing about where we're sitting right now, we had that limbo basically from March 1972 when the storm in Parliament was prorogued right the way through, apart from 18 months in 2000 to 2002. We've had that limbo from 1972 right the way through to 2007. And then we basically had it again from 2017 to now. Um, when, when decisions aren't been made, the British government is just 
doesn't want to do anything because it thinks if it makes decisions, it, it upsets too many people. So it just keeps the whole place ticking along. One thing that worries me particularly, and I had cards on the table, I voted for the Good Friday Agreement. I voted for the Good Friday Agreement because I really did believe it was a moment that hadn't existed in my lifetime before. And uh, I grew up again my, my, in a very political family. Of, of My father was a very senior member of the Orange Order and Ulster Unionist Party. So I, I remember that life. I remember him checking under his car. I remember my mom and the mother, if they were cross with each other, he would always track her down in the house and give her a hug and a kiss before he left. Because as she said to me years later, we didn't know if that would be the last time we would see each other. And I remember that world. It was a horrible world. I, I didn't want my children to, to come up with that. So I said, look, maybe, maybe we can just prove to the world, prove to ourselves that we can do things better. We can do politics better. That even though we're not, not going to change on the constitutional issue, we can look at health. We can look at education. We can look at infrastructure. We can look at Loch Ness. We can look at all those things that, that we all experience every day and see just maybe, just maybe, sitting around a table and being told, here's the money, make the priorities yourselves. Decide what's most important to you. What we have proved, you know, you're looking at it from 30 years since the, the talks process started to where we are now, what I fear most, and I really do genuinely fear this, because I'm 68 now and I get to the point where if there's going to be a huge, you know, reimagining and recalibration of what we do in Northern Ireland, I probably won't live long enough to see it and so on. I just fear that we're reaching that point at which a majority on both sides in terms of, of, of the electorate and including the, the, the others, uh, middle ground and those who don't vote. I think there's a majority of them quietly reaching the conclusion, not shouting it from the rooftops, but just quietly sitting back, listening to news, reading stuff and thinking, nah, it's never, no matter what they do, even if this one goes down, even the Good Friday Agreement goes down, there's nothing going to replace it. It hasn't worked. We haven't shown the better side of ourselves. Northern Ireland, in terms of societal change, in terms of how we educate our children, in terms of how we fix ourselves, in terms of how we do our politics, to be honest, I don't see a huge difference between now and uh, 30 years ago. We still live in us and them areas. We still go to us and them schools. We still read us and them newspapers. And even the fact that 30 years down the line, some sort of you know um, inter-community uh, project is still deemed worthy of newspaper headlines and a newspaper story, that should be the norm, not the exception. And I think if you reach that point, when a majority really do decide it's not going to change. It's not going to get better. We cannot do this internally. I think that raises huge questions about the survival of the Good Friday Agreement because I'm Freya and I've and I've had this conversation before. Even if if, if Jeffrey does, you know, suddenly decide, okay, I'll, I'll put it to the vote and go back in, you know, it's not going to be utopia. It never was utopia. It never was brilliant government. And I imagine six months to a year down the line, the whole thing will collapse again. I just think. And I know this is my pessimism coming through, but uh, my pessimism has served me well down the years. I just think we've reached a point where nobody is expecting, even if we rebooted, nobody is expecting things to get better. And I don't think the British and Irish governments have fully taken that on board. I don't think the political parties in Northern Ireland have fully taken that on board. And I just think that the limbo we could potentially face in a matter of months will make what where we are right now look like the good old days. I'm not sure this new optimistic Alex is actually, <laughs> is, is really well, what it's listen, cut out to be. Pat, Pat, but that's, that's very heartfelt from Alex. And it, um, I think a lot of people 
who, like Alex, north and south of the border voted for the Belfast Agreement or the Good Friday Agreement, might be feeling something similar at this point. You know, whether it's a kind of a, a despair about whether, the, you know, the, the, the ancient integrity of the quarrel can ever, be, uh, can ever be surmounted or just something more practical that the deal never really worked. It achieved great things. Most importantly, there are a lot of people alive now who wouldn't be alive if it were, were, were it not for it. But it clearly is not working now. And whether or not things are staying more or less the same in Northern Ireland in the rather grim way which Alex lays out there. The world is changing around Northern Ireland, you know. Uh, things are changing in Dublin. Things are changing in London. There'll be a new Labour government, as I said, probably in London. Things are changing in the world at large. That needs to be reflected in some way in terms of how the business of Northern Ireland is conducted. Well, maybe it should do. But, or maybe not, but will it? Saying. But will it? it I mean... Explain to me, you know, the set of events that leads to a renegotiation of the Good Friday Agreement and then tell me that, you know, that those negotiations, if and when they take place, have uh, a chance of success. I, 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 I find it hard to see. I agree completely that the agreement needs to be overhauled. And the most obvious thing, I suppose, is that, you know, it's kind of artificial politics, it's constitutionally bifurcated politics, if you can call it that, maybe has reached the end of the road. And it is time, you know, to let, you know, simple majorities. And if there can be cross-community coalitions, all the better. But um, if if not, um, then that will have to be accepted too. Because, you know, the the place needs a, a government, of some shape or form. And if the current arrangements can't produce one, then it seems to me the logical thing to do is to look at alternative arrangements. I just find it very difficult to see how that happens and how it has that process, so that it, renegotiation it, it process. It almost needs a crisis a to create success. that opportunity, is what you're saying. Like a real crisis. I mean, I, I certainly don't want anything of the sort, but some, you know, some awful event or something, some kind of, you know, yeah, terrible. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps that's... It's difficult to see anything else jolting it into... Yeah. Just to jump in, you know, I completely agree with Pat on that. I just don't think it's it's possible that we would ever, you know, if you look at the level of disagreement about small things, how you would ever get to the stage where you could, you know, renegotiate the Good Friday Agreement and then get something that everybody would would agree on. I I, I just don't think it's possible. And so I think I think for better or worse... Um, it's what it's what we have. Uh, if if we are going to do this this compromise, if we are going to do the compromise that is Stormont and, and power sharing, I think this is what what we have. I think it absolutely um, it would make sense to look at uh, tweaking around around the the edges to look at reform. Um, but fundamentally, this is what there is. Otherwise, people are are, are going to and people are turning away and looking at other options and 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 the big. Other option, and the one that is really building the momentum, is is the question about a united Ireland. Um, now that throws up obviously huge problems about what do you do about the unionist minority w- within that. How, how do you, you know, I, I mean, this is a a topic for not even a whole other podcast. I mean, a whole other series of podcasts. How 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 you bring you bring all all of this in? Don't worry, we yeah, will do I, that. I'm, I'm sure, but but that is that is the one element of this where the momentum has been growing and and you know the longer this goes on actually the more it builds that the people are just switching and going off and going you know what this hasn't worked let, let, let's just get rid of it northern ireland was was the compromise it hasn't worked 
you know, we 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 just get rid of it, get rid of partition, um, and we we have a United Ireland, and yeah, how all that would play out, you know, it's just going to be huge. Well, well, indeed, and Alex, you've already said, you know, that there's there's a lot of floating voters who aren't necessarily voting for the unionist parties at the next election, but who will vote for the union should it come to a poll, and I think that's right, and I think opinion polling uh, has generally shown that that that. that that is likely to be the case for certainly the the, the, sh- the short to, to medium term future. But I suppose that is, I mean, Faye is right, that's the one dynamic that is kind of in, in flux and is active. And, you know, you could see developments for good or ill from a unionist perspective, for example, a Sinn Féin-led government in Dublin um, and a number of other things, and, and a more a more proactive approach to to pushing for for Irish unification you know in in Northern Ireland as well that would change the dynamic wouldn't it would that essentially push unionism even further back into the kind of the sort of not an inch kind of position which we've been discussing so far today yes i think it would make it the, the, the thing about unionism and i speak as a lifelong unionist that um is that there's an inherent paranoia uh, within us as a community. So we, we don't trust anyone. We don't trust ourselves, but we don't trust the British, the Irish, the Americans, the EU, anyone who isn't a card-carrying unionist of some sort or can prove they went to you know, a Protestant unionist-type school or work in that sort of background is, is viewed with some suspicion. And that, that makes it extraordinarily difficult for unionism to reach out. And uh, if we can see now with the, with the protocol and with, with, the, um, with the Windsor framework and so on that uh, the unionists feel yet again, well, political electoral unionism feels yet again that it has been let down, it has been betrayed. And then, you know, you, you get them on the, on, the, on the roller coaster of grievance and they'll go back to, well, they took our parliament away and then they forced power sharing on us and then they forced the Anglo-Irish agreement on us and then the, new, the Downing Street Declaration. And at some point, at some point, and it's, it, it's something I've banged on about for years, at some point unionism, you know, it keeps saying we don't want to talk to the Irish, we don't want to talk to the Nationalists, we don't want to talk to... They need to begin to talk to each other. They need to understand what it means to be a unionist, what responsibilities we have as citizens of the United Kingdom in this part of a divided society and a divided Ireland. We need to make the case for unionism which isn't based on that paranoia, which isn't based on that fear, which isn't based on that, well, we must have, we're a majority, we must, we must, we must. And I think that's, that is the long, no matter where unionism finds itself, even when, even when there was, it, it had its own parliament, you know, the unionism, uh, you know, successive prime ministers were still coming under pressure from the Orange Order. They were still coming under pressure from mavericks and fringes within unionism and loyalism. And even, even when the place looked fairly settled, you know, in the early 1960s, out of nowhere along comes the rebooted UVF because they didn't like, um, they didn't like ecumenism and they didn't like, you know, the, the, the liberalism of, of O'Neill and people like that. So when you have a... a, a a political, constitutional, like, sort of personal identity dynamic in which the that group feels constantly under fear. It does make it enormously difficult, not only for itself, but it also makes it enormously difficult for um, all the other elements in play, the governments and the and the nationalist and republican community. So yeah, anything. Then if Northern Ireland doesn't work, but it's a very convoluted way of, of getting around to saying if Northern Ireland doesn't seem capable of producing stability, if it doesn't seem capable of producing even the tolerance of people who constitutionally are not pro-union, but who would say, well, you know, let's not rock the boat. Let's not push anything too hard. We're getting along reasonably well. Let's see how things go before we start demanding things. I think that opportunity is gone as well. And I think unionists now have to face the fact that um, if they're not accepting the Windsor framework, if they're not accepting the protocol, if they decide to abandon devolution, 
then they can hardly turn around and be surprised if the British and Irish government start saying, well, let's look at the alternatives. And the one thing I think that unionists forget about in all of this, there is nothing to prevent a British government just deciding, OK, let, let's test this. If the Good Friday Agreement has failed, if, if we decide that that period from 1921 to 72, when unionists ran the country, if we have now said that that is a failure, we'll, was never coming back, and that we've had 50 years of that, if we've now had 25 years or 30 years of a peace process and 25 years of, of the Good Friday Agreement, if we're concluding that that isn't really working either, Maybe we need to do the ultimate test. Maybe we need to begin, before we begin any other process, before we begin any other for what institutions or how we change things, maybe we need to make a calculation of just how many people actually want to remain in the United Kingdom. And I think that's something, I'm not saying it's going to happen in the next you know, six months or something, but I think in the back of British government's minds, that is being thought about now. Because they, if you look at the... Um, back to the, the no selfish strategic or economic interest doctrine, which emerged in the Downing Street Declaration of 1993. That was already emerging in speeches uh, within conservatism and in the NIO from the mid-1980s onwards. So it's been talked about for almost eight years before they made that, before our British government actually said, well, you know, we've no emotional attachment, we've no political attachment, we've no electoral attachment. So as long as the majority, yeah, fine, you're fine. But when you don't, when you're missing that, when you're missing that key element that the people you claim are a part of your your national identity and citizenship, when they are so disinterested, uninterested, you know, uh, almost cavalier in their approach to you, I think unionism has to begin to understand some realities which it has singularly failed to address. For you know, you can go back to the very beginning to go back to 1921. We've never addressed it. It's about time we did. And just a very, very last thought from from you, Pat. I'm determinedly searching for a kernel of optimism in 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 what Alex was saying there. It does seem to me, you know, there is a potential for change here. The situation in Northern Ireland now is unionists no longer command a majority, but the union commands a majority. So the there's a kind of decoupling that is that is happening there, which is obviously, and I don't want this podcast to be about, you know, delving into the psychological uh, psychological darknesses of, of unionism, which has turned into a little bit over the over the last while. Thanks to Alex, of course, for that. Um, it's, You're very welcome, <laughs> Alex the Optimist. It's, it's that, you know, things are changing there. Uh, you know, the demographics, and not just the demographics, but what people think about their own identity are is more nuanced than it was, certainly than it was in 1922. And, this, and that needs to be reflected politically. At some this point. was one of the great messages, I thought, of the North and South research that we did uh, last year, and which no doubt readers will be excited uh, to hear that there's uh, another, there's another tranche of that uh, on the way in the not too distant future. But it was that whilst the top line results on the constitutional question had not budged all uh, all that much in Northern Ireland. There's still a two to one majority amongst declared voters in, uh, in favour of maintaining the union. That underneath that, Northern Ireland society and therefore politics in all sorts of ways and at all sorts of levels is in a state of some flux. And it has always seems to me seemed to me, and I've I've, I've written this uh, a couple of times that the, you know, if unionists are arguing for the constitutional status quo, then it seems to me that the the first imperative for political unionism is to demonstrate that the status quo actually works for yep. the people yep. of. Northern Ireland. And that is not going to be a perfect unionist or a perfect DUP nirvana for for Geoffrey Donaldson in 
government. I mean, if you think of the sort of issues that would face him uh, were he to go into government next week, there's this huge budgetary black hole, the prospect of a load of budget cuts, there's the legacy of several years of of non-government, some of which Freya alluded to earlier, and there's the fact that he wouldn't even be the first minister, he would be the deputy first minister to a Sinn Féin woman in uh, in the first minister's office. So that, of course, is not a very alluring prospect of him, but what's the alternative? To admit that the status quo in the North doesn't work politically and can't work politically. Well, it doesn't. You don't have to stretch your brains too hard to see that if the status quo doesn't work, then people, either the people of Northern Ireland or the two governments might begin to look at uh, alternatives that might even be less palatable Mm. for I sense that that we at least have reached, if not a consensus, at least some agreement on the way perhaps that some of these these things are going. We do have to leave it there. Uh, As Pat referenced, we will be covering a lot of these bigger questions which we've been talked about more over the course of this year and into next year. Is that right to say, Pat? At great and tedious length. Well, I certainly, for one, do look forward to it. <laughs> thanks very much to, to Pat and thanks very much indeed in particular to, to Alex and to Freya for joining us today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. Until then, thanks very much for listening. 